Good morning. It's great to be with you all. Um, so George is back with us. We're very excited about that. That means Mark and I can't uh, be quite as long-winded, which is, you know, that's always the, the challenge when we're trying to think about how to fit all the things we'd like to say into this space, right? So I'll do my best to be clear, but, but still uh, go through the kind of key content here and, and leave room for conversation and to hear from each of us. Um, okay, so... Um, if you remember, if you've been kind of following the drama of scripture that we've been tracing in this class, we, uh, we've talked about it in the terms that John Mark Hicks uses in his book that we've been reading, and that there are kind of like five acts to this drama, right? So act one, um, he thinks of in terms of creation, which includes the fall and the story leading up to the election of Israel as God's people in the world to do God's God's work in the way that Adam and Eve were intended to do, but fell away from. So he's going to partner with Israel in this special way to um, use them as a means of setting things right in the world that has fallen and been broken by sin. Um, so Act 2 is um, Israel. We've kind of been following their story um, and how they ended up, we, we looked at how they ended up following the same kind of pattern that humanity followed in the beginning uh, which is they, they too chose their own agenda over God's. They chose to image themselves rather than imaging God. Um, when we think of what it means to sin, I think that's one helpful way of thinking of what, what it is, that it's when we trust our wisdom over God's. It's when we say, rather than imaging God, I'm going to kind of project my own image, or I'm going to try to create the world in my image. I'm going to try to do what seems right to me rather than what God's set out for me. So we see Israel repeating that same pattern. Um, and so we see now we're moving into Act 3. And the idea here is that when Israel fails, God becomes Israel and fulfills um, the covenant, uh, fulfills the faithfulness to the covenant that God promised to Abraham and thereby enables all of us to inherit what was promised to Abraham. So it's this really beautiful picture we're going to be tracing and I'm especially interested to hear what my, my colleagues in Bible have to say to help shed light on all of this. But what I want to do is focus a little bit on the, just kind of the idea, the, this kind of, I mean, enormously, um, you know, scandalous in a lot of ways. I mean, it's not to us now, but for people at the time in that cultural setting, the idea that God would want to become human was a wild idea. Uh, and not just any human, but a poor human, someone who lived among a forgotten people in this kind of little forgotten part of the world, you know, according to the, what the empire's logic, how it ran, right? So um, it, it's fascinating to think about, and, and one thing I'm especially interested to hear Mark and George help me think through is um, why in the world that message took off not just among Jews who had this whole heritage of living with Yahweh and expecting a Messiah, but it took off among Gentiles as well. I find that just fascinating. So uh, I want to I learn more about that from them. Um, so what I'm going to do is look just for a few minutes at a couple of different passages. One is uh, John 1, 1 through 5, and 14 through 18. And then I want to look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So I'll start with John 1. So John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And then I'm going to skip down to 14. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Okay, so um, there are these moments like this in Scripture that function almost like a summary of the whole story. So they're really important to pay attention to, and this is one of those kind of sets of passages. Okay, so what we see here is this picture of God, the Logos, uh, the Word becoming human. And um, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot we can unpack. And maybe if you have questions, like we can address some of those if we have time today. I'm just going to kind of put a few ideas out for your consideration, um, some ways of understanding what's, what's being kind of gathered and held here. Um, okay, so first of all, if you think about the early audience for this, in the beginning, of course, evokes the notion of creation, right? We're thinking right back to the beginning of the grand story. Um, so, and then the Logos, this eternal word, this is like the self-expressing kind of plan or vision of God. Um, this is the way this early audience would have heard this, and my Greek scholars here could help me if there's something I'm, I'm leaving out there. Um, but the idea that most people had, this, this was a, a Hellenistic idea, that it looks like John is using kind of, he's using the notion of, uh, the Hebraic notion of wisdom, God creating the world through this pattern of wisdom, and he's saying, hey, that, we can use that in, in the terms of this idea of the Logos that orders all things. So um, this is a claim that the, the mind of God, the plan, the vision itself can become human and live among us. Which is a kind of beautiful idea when you think about what it means when we look at Jesus. We see the, the plan, the vision, the whole kind of purpose of creation, walking and talking and living among us. Sort of exegeting what creation was supposed to look like. Uh, before it fell. Okay, um, what we also have here, oh, and if you're curious about how, um, what I mean when I say that he, it seems like he's pairing this with this Hebraic notion of wisdom, we could, if we had time, we could look at Proverbs 8, 27 through 30. I'm not going to try to get into that now, but that's a good link. You could see, you can, you can definitely hear the echoes there if you look at Proverbs 8, 27 through 30, in case you're interested. Um, but in John's usage, um, He's identifying Christ as the one uh, who shapes creation, the key to knowing what that design actually is. Um, And then he also uses this language of the word being with God, prostheos. Um, And again, I'm like, help me out if I'm getting this wrong. But um, as I understand it, this is a relational word. Um, It indicates a kind of movement of being uh, with one another. Um, It's a relational with. It's not just, a, I have my phone with me today. Um, it's more like, I have my friend with me today, right? It's a, there's a relationship implied in the witness. Um, so there's this intimacy and connectedness. Um, so this is, you start seeing ways in which 
the second person is is also the word of God. The logos of God is a person. Is a personal there's a personal relationship that's indicated in these types of passages. And of course we see it lived out in Christ's life as he prays to the Father. Um, and especially at his baptism. That was the last reading, if you got to do that today, um, in John Mark's book. He, he looks at the, the scene of the baptism as one where we see the Trinity in action. Right? The, the heavens open up, you hear the voice of the Father, the Son enters the waters, and the Spirit descends as a dove, and you see all three members present. Okay? Um, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit here, but um, the story implies that the Spirit is the one who both elicits and emerges from this communion of the Son and the Father. Um, we'll say more. I'll say more about the Trinity as we keep going through the story, so I won't try to unpack that much more for now. But um, we just need to remember that in John 12, we find that we have fellowship in this communion between Father and Son, that we are invited into this. Remember Christ's prayer, may they be one as we are one, and may they enjoy this fellowship that we enjoy so that's this beautiful uh, picture, I think, of how what the Spirit that's poured out upon us as well, the same Spirit that's poured out upon the Son, enables in us, it enables us to join in this communion, um, enables us to pray, Abba, Father, just as Christ the Son did, um, enables us to become like Christ, essentially. It's a really kind of wonderful mystery. Um, so the Word was not only with God, but also was Theos, God. Um, so not only is there a relationship here, but this second person shares in whatever it means to be God. Another wonderful, mysterious claim, right? Um, so the way uh, early Christians worked this out in light of Scripture is they really paid attention to the claims that this is, the Father says, this is my only begotten Son. And they say, well, there's something different between being begotten and made. Humans are made, creatures are made, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. This is something totally different, a different kind of uh, emerging from a source. Okay, um, the life was the light of men in verse 5. Um, I think what we hear here is the darkness that descended when humanity fell into folly, right? Um, refusing the light and life of wisdom, of God's path. But, uh, I love this, the darkness never mastered it, never mastered the light. Um, God was faithful to humanity. God's purposes held true, even though humanity fell into this darkness, right? Okay, and then we have, um, skipping over to verse 17, God beckoning to humanity through the law of Moses. Uh, but this vision is not enough to turn us away from darkness. So the law and the relationship to the law is this really fascinating peace that has to be worked out as Israel tries to make sense of what it means that the Messiah has come, and now this has all been opened up to the Gentiles. So again, I look forward to hearing more about this from my colleagues. Um, I find that aspect of, especially, you know, reading Romans um, to be challenging but enriching. Every time I read more about it, I learn more about the mystery of salvation and how God was partnering with Israel and has now invited us into being Israel. Um, okay, so what else? Okay, this uh, another claim that's interesting is that the Word became flesh uh, and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Uh, so the Logos was God. The Logos became part of creation. God dwelled among us. 
Um, and this is, you know, resonates with this language we've been using about God seeking to kind of be among the people in forms of a temple, a tabernacle, a presence that shows up in this glorious way. I mean, if in Israel, God shows up in these uh, special moments like the burning bush, um, partnering with them to liberate them from slavery and guiding them through the desert uh, as cloud and fire, uh, showing up and hovering over the Holy of Holies. And when God shows up, it is a glorious moment. Now, it's interesting because part of why I think um, it's hard for people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, the very presence of divinity, is because he doesn't look so glorious sometimes, right? Um, you, you have to have eyes to see him that way. But we have um, a wonderful picture of his glory breaking through um, at the Mount of Transfiguration. At that moment... His disciples are enabled to see the full glory of divinity that's present in him, but you have to have the eyes to see it, right? Um, so that's another theme we can kind of keep tracing here. Okay, um, let's see. Grace and truth came through the Logos made human. Um, I think one thing I'd like to say is that um, this is not saying that the law was bad or false. Um, it's a form of God's loving kindness. Um, we might even say a form of grace, that's not the language Israel would have used, but it's language that makes sense to us. But the point is the law couldn't do what the Son of God could do. Um, the law couldn't fix us. We were too, we were enslaved to sin in such a way that the law, even though it was the special means of God being present to Israel, enabling them to be faithful, they had to have some sort of extra help, some sort of extra medicine, so to speak, right? Okay, so the law, as wonderful as it was, was still part of creation. What the law said was in human form, but in Jesus Christ, we see the reality of God showing up in the flesh. We see who God really is. Now, in Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11, let's glance at that, and then I'll, I'll be winding up. I won't go on as long about that either. So let's look at Philippians 2. Most of us probably know this by heart, but I don't trust myself to say it correctly, so I'd rather read it. Okay. Um, let the same, I'm starting in verse 5, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so the word form here... Um, Again, as I understand it, is a contested word. Um, John Mark, actually, he told me that he thought it, mean, it means essence. Um, I don't know if getting it right is exactly the point. I think the point is that the Son, the Logos, who is God, enjoyed the status, the privileges, everything that it means to be God, and he didn't consider that something to hold on to, to be exploited, but was willing to let go of that privilege and become like us. Um, he didn't take his status as something to use to his own self-serving ends. 
So um, this means that the Son in the flesh exegetes God for us, so to speak, interprets God, and shows God to be not only powerful, not only the author of creation, but the author of love and salvation. Um, the one who pours himself into reality to pursue us, to bring us back into relationship with him, uh, to, becomes a servant even to the point of death on a cross, death reserved for a despised person, right? A slave, a forgotten person. This is who God is. Uh, this is the kind of love that God has. God is the one who goes to the cross for us. So uh, if we didn't learn a kind of for otherness from creation, um, from Yahweh, um, from the God who pursues Israel and liberates Israel and um, kind of has this troubled love over Israel, then we have to learn that for otherness from Christ, from the way he shows up and lives among us. Okay, and um, John Mark spent a lot of time thinking about what happens when God becomes human, um, and he proposes uh, this kind of, I think, an interesting idea that what happens is that God uh, experiences something that God couldn't experience any other way. Um, God kind of takes the experience of death, for example, up into what it means to be God. Um, that otherwise, God was at a remove from that. He could know it, I think John Mark says, sympathetically, but not empathetically. Um, I think that's an interesting idea. I actually like, um, there's a 4th century theologian, Gregory of Nazianzus, who I think says it in a way that makes sense to me. He says, um, what God has not assumed has not been healed. So everything that Christ goes through is part of healing the human condition. So God shows up in the flesh and kind of reinterprets, reorders, reformulates what it means to be human. So that's why it's so important that he is born as an infant and lives all the way through death and on the other side of death is raised from the dead. What he has assumed has been healed. So we have to say, we have to affirm that he is human in every way. And the early Christians really wrestled with this um, in the first few centuries after the Christ event. Um, so I'm going to leave it there and see if we have time to hear from these guys. Did you just casually read Gregory? <laughs> Not casually. <laughs> but yeah, I do. I do read it. It's terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Glad to be with you as always. I will tell you, um, I got a, a toothache, and I'm wondering if there's a dentist in here. Because <laughs> apparently, I can't handle the tooth. <laughs> Jack Nicholson? A few good men? Oh, come on. All right. You can't handle the truth. All right. But I really do need to talk to you that long. Okay. Okay. I tried. It, it didn't work. Okay. We've said this a hundred times. God's goal is to create humans for fellowship with him and for, him, for us to help him take care of this wonderful world that he has given us. That's bringing it down to the basics. And so he, uh, when Adam and Eve brought so much sin into the world, God created this rescue mission through Abraham. And Israel was supposed to uh, be that nation that does what God wants and bring all the other nations in. One of the promises is that we would, uh, is that um, uh, all would be brought in under God's 
um, will because that's why God created the world. He loved all. Israel wasn't a means, wasn't an end, it's a means to an end. Uh, and so that wasn't working out so well. God let them have a king. They wanted a king. Kings are a mess. They're a problem. But God said, okay, if I'm going to give you a king, I'm going to give you a good one. Saul wasn't so good. David came along. He was a pretty good king. He at least had the heart of God in the important ways, even though he messed up a lot. Unfortunately, he couldn't do everything he was supposed to do. And then his son was not quite as good, Solomon. And then it just gets worse and worse, right? You got a couple of good ones, but none of them can bring Israel back. The important thing here, one of the important things is you've got to have a good king if you're going to have a nation that does what it's supposed to do. All right, you can see I'm going a very different direction than she did, but the question is why did God become human? And so I'm going there from the standpoint of God was creating a kingdom, and uh, in order to do that, he had to create had to make Israel what it was supposed to be. kingdom of Israel becomes the kingdom of God, brings everyone in. And so let me just say a word about who Jesus was. We use the word Christ, which in my opinion is unfortunate. Now, I know that's kind of weird since the uh, time of the Greeks, way back in the New Testament period. Uh, or right after that, started using the word Christ because it is it has the same meaning as another word. What does it mean? What's that? Messiah. It means Messiah, yes. Alright? And so, Christ, I'm not sure that we even think of the Jewish background of this word. Christ, we think of God in heaven came down as a human being to die for us and that's who Christ is. Alright? That misses so much of the point here is that Christ is Messiah. Now the problem is, Messiah doesn't say much to us either, does it? What does Messiah mean? The anointed one. Alright? What kind of anointed one? The anointed king. Messiah means the, you all know the word eschatological? I hate those big words, but sometimes they're the only word that really works. If I had to use, if I had to come up with an um, uh, English equivalent, maybe the, um, let's see, the final, the future and final king of Israel. All right? This is an Israelite word, it's a Jewish word. And it refers to the one that God would send someday uh, to lead Israel back. Because without a strong king, there was no chance of this. A good king creates a good nation. Uh, and so, it's so important that we think of Jesus as the uh, future and final king that God had promised to bring Israel back. And then Israel could bring all of the nations in. And so, uh, the new translations have actually uh, taken away most of the references of the translation of Christ and made it Messiah. But we got to know that Messiah 
is this future king of Israel to put it all in its context. So this is what they were, uh, what they were waiting on. And so this is God's you know, ultimate rescue mission. The kings had failed. Even when the prophets said, you've got to repent, you've got to do better, they didn't do so well. And the prophets went ahead and built in a better message than, I mean, another message other than you have done the wrong thing and you're going to be punished. It was someday <laughs> you'll repent, I will forgive, I will send the Messiah. What is it that the king does to make the nation so much better? Why does a good king lead to a good nation? Example. Example. You've got to model it from the top down, right? What else? Knows the will of God. All right? Knows what God wants, is in touch with God, and enforces that will. All right? A king's an enforcer. Make no mistake about that. It's not just be an example. An example. But uh, the people are disciplined when they don't do what is right. And they are brought into uh, alignment with what God wants. And that's what was supposed to happen, but the kings couldn't pull it off. So we needed a new king who could pull that off. But this king had to know that, had to experience what that was. So we have King Jesus. See, I don't like that. It doesn't sound right to us. Does it? it doesn't sound like the future and final king of Israel. But that's what they needed. We don't like kings at all, right? We like democracy. <laughs> king was all they knew, and it's actually a pretty good idea if you've got a good king. Uh, but if you don't have a good king, what you've got is a mess. So, needed the ultimate king, and so you get Jesus, and so Jesus is nothing like they expected as a king. They wanted a king. Yes, they wanted one who was righteous. You know, Israel wasn't just, we want wealth, and power, and we want to destroy our enemies. They did want that. <laughs> but of course, they, also, they wanted righteousness. They wanted goodness. Uh, they wanted a wonderful king who would lead them. And that's, that is clear through the prophets. And so, but what they got was Jesus. And what Jesus wanted was, he really wanted to do what was right. And that wasn't anything people really wanted. <laughs> He wanted them to be the light the, to the nations, which meant sacrificing yourself for the nations. And so Jesus comes along to model it, but he also comes along as the representative. The king is the representative of Israel. And the people got all excited when there was a new king, and it was kind of like, maybe Saul will lead us to be who God wants we are in Saul. We are, this is, this is who we put our confidence in. This is who we love. My wife's saying, why are you doing this? Uh, I don't know. All right. Uh, I don't think it's really helping at all. Um, so, uh, the Jews really wanted to destroy uh, their neighbors, or the, the Romans especially. And... The prophet said the Messiah will come and destroy evil and will destroy the en enemies. And so here's another surprise. It's, um, the Messiah comes and does not um, 
lead a revolution against the Romans that decides, okay, what we'll do is we'll love the Romans. We will carry their bags the extra mile. Uh, we'll die. We'll die for the Romans. Love our enemies. And they didn't much like it. All right. So we have uh, this king of Israel, Jesus, who is restoring Israel to what it was supposed to be, a righteous nation. And then, to your question, just a part of it, it was supposed to go to the Gentiles because it was always God's will for the Gentiles to come, for them to be blessed as well. And the Gentiles loved it. Okay, some of the Gentiles loved it. Important Romans and many of the masses followed Jesus and followed the early Christians because of their lifestyles. I mean, these are neighbors who are moral. These are neighbors who have integrity. These are neighbors who will take care of you. These are neighbors who will even sacrifice for you. They love that. And they love the idea that the church, New Israel, church is New Israel, just as plain as it can be, as Josh was saying today. And so, uh, as their, their whole worldview was that there is one God, and guess what? Unlike Zeus and Athena and Poseidon and all those, this God is moral, this God loves people, this God does rescue missions for people, this God wants people to leave sin because it's destroying them, which Josh always said, also said today very well. And uh, so they love that worldview. One God instead of all these gods. Moral God instead of these immoral gods who loves people and made creation, made humans, and the goal was to take care of others. They said, I'll take that. Love that. And they did by the millions. By the 300s, there had been millions who had joined the group because they just absolutely loved it because of that worldview, because of that example, uh, and because of the morals. They knew their problem. They didn't know what to do with their sin. We all know we got sin. What do we deal with that? Well, you get in a community, the new Israel, that is acting right. You have the power of the Spirit. You know that your sins have been given because your representative, Jesus, could die for Israel because he was Israel. He came to do what Israel did. And, wow, we're running out of time. Uh, but everything in Israel's past, we find, was, uh, uh, was recapitulated in Jesus. We'll have to talk about this more next time. I want to give... Uh, George, a time to uh, make his comments, ask questions, or whatever. Yeah, I, I basically just have a couple questions. And I hope that this conversation can draw out some implications and practical implications, maybe, of what, what you're talking about. So it's really fun to, to try to hear uh, Lauren and also Mark to, to put the whole story together in some way. And it, it's fascinating because you're making choices about what to emphasize and, and what to leave off when you do that. And so I just kind of want to draw out maybe some, some of your thinking about why you chose this particular thing to emphasize. 
And, and the thing that comes to my mind, uh, and it came up as I was reading John Mark's book as well, and I, I think it, it may have boiled down in church history to an East versus West type discussion, Eastern Christianity versus like Orthodox Christianity versus Roman Catholicism and Western Christianity. But uh, I've, I think I heard somebody say that an Eastern Christianity, even if Adam and Eve have never sinned, Jesus still would have been sent to live a human life. And when I first heard that, I thought, what in the world? Uh, it, didn't Jesus come to deal with sin? And and this this way of putting it, you know, the incarnate, like, I, I kind of want to ask, are we saved by what Jesus did on the cross? Or, and this is maybe an unfair question, or are we saved by Jesus becoming human? And, and, and what are the practical implications if we shift our, our gospel message away, maybe not away from the cross, but if we include the incarnation and the life as well. What, is, what, what does that mean for our, our songs and for the way we think about the gospel and maybe the way that we read the gospel? Pop up since if I'm sitting down, you might not be able to hear me. Um, we'll talk about this when we start like a little bit later in the semester. We'll talk about the atonement. Uh, but the answer seems to be it's all of the above, that we are saved because God becomes human and because he died on the cross and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think in our tradition of emphasizing the cross, we emphasize sin. And sometimes because of that, we've neglected the other things that might have needed healing. So, for example, when I talk about this with my undergrads, I talk about Christ came to release us from sin, but also to defeat the powers of evil and our enslavement to death. And so I think it's just a richer, fuller way of talking about salvation. When, uh, and it means we start paying attention to the way evil works in the world, not just personal sin. We think more, maybe a more, it's a, it's a kind of bigger view. Because evil, we think, oh, wait, that's, that's bigger than us. Sin feels personal. It feels like something I can control, maybe. Like give my life to God and work really hard. But evil feels like, okay, that's what keeps us these big systems of oppression going. That's what keeps people in conflict, right? That's what keeps... So we have a, a responsibility to pay attention to that, to pray about that, to try to do the work of setting those things right. And then also with death, I just think we need a, a stronger sense of death having this grip on us, and it's the last enemy to be defeated, and that's what we look forward to is the resurrection of our bodies, that we're not looking forward to just getting away from our bodies and getting away from the world and floating around as spirits, you know, someday, that God's going to recreate the whole world, that we're promised this new creation. So I think it would just be a fuller picture of what salvation is, really. That's really good. And uh, the second question is, is Christianity the only religion where God or the gods become human in the same way, like I know that there are Greek gods who take on human form and do crazy things. Uh, but is Christianity unique in the sense that we have God becoming a human, and and not as you said, not just any human, not not a 
a king that they would expect, but the type of human that God became. And could that be part of the, the genius of Christianity? Could it be why Christianity took off and grew? Um, but is that, I don't know, is there, is, have there been thought about why is that, why did Christianity, is that unique about Christianity? Are there some other religions that maybe have a similar thing, or is this just our thing? Do you have anything to say to that? Or do you want me to? Go ahead. Well, I, as far as I know, um, there are other, I'm trying to think of how to sum it up. Basically, there are other religions that would say, or mythologies that would say that gods can take on a kind of human form, but never for the sake of helping us, relinquishing us from some sort of enslavement to, to evil or sin, right? Um, they never come as servants. They never show up to serve us. So that's a really unique claim. Um, also, there are other, you know, you, you know something about like these, some of these Eastern religions would say you can get in touch with divinity, you can get in touch with what it means to be God, but not that God is personal and can come and show up and be in relationship with you the way Christianity claims. So it is, an, as far as I know, an utterly unique expression of, it's that you can see traces of it in these other places, but yeah, I want to hear what Mike has to say on this, yeah. My understanding uh, with John, the Logos, in Greek thought, the Logos was like an intermediary. Yeah. So it, it was, God was so perfect, we had to step down many, many layers to get to the creation of humanity. Mm -hmm. And so what John does with that, he says, the Logos is God, and I step down from God. And the Logos is a human being, and I step down. And so it flattens that out in a way that would have been, I think, shocking. That's right. Yeah, that was a, a, a very unusual claim. And that's one thing that early Christians were often accused of being crazy because they had that claim. Yeah, and we're, we're sort of used to it now, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, at the time, it was, it was a wild one. Uh, lots of people in the ancient world, the, the great leaders, uh, there were stories about them even beginning life as, uh, as God-man in some sense. Some of them didn't become God until they died, the emperors. Uh, then they became gods. But like Alexander Great would be a great example. Uh, Alexander the Great was amazing, you know, ruler. Uh, his mother was impregnated by Zeus in the form of a snake. They don't even think about that too much, but um, that's where Alexander the Great came from. And he was so great that he had to be Zeus in the flesh. And in fact, he acted like Zeus. Uh, he conquered the world. Uh, Zeus was not a nice guy. Zeus liked power and control, and um, so that's what Alexander the Great was like. So whatever you had, there was nothing like uh, a Jesus coming to the world to represent the one God and to be that kind of God man. Yeah, so when you ask why, why did Christianity grow so much, the thing that my first knee-jerk response to that was because it's true. But I know we can't say that. But <laughs> there has to be some other reason, like political reason or just accident of history reason. But could it be because it's because it's true? Sure. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, maybe a minute for 
thoughts or some questions that may bring out some things that would be good for us. Mike, boy, just give me your opinion. Do you think that's the Holy Spirit at work? What is that, the Holy Spirit? That makes the reading of Gospels true. So true it changes your heart. Mm. Do, do you think that is a big part of it? I like that. I like that idea. There is something about the way the Spirit works through the revelation that is different than reading anything else. Yeah, for sure. Uh, how about the fact that um, God could have just come as an adult, I guess, or adopted an adult? Anything special that he's actually born, that Mary is chosen to give birth to God versus... I mean, it's weird to think about how else could God have done that. But do you want to say anything about the fact yeah. that he was born and actually had to grow up and, yeah. and all that? What does that say? I should have just sat in one of these chairs. <laughs> um, I, I think that has to do with the idea that I was that Gregory of Nazianzus talked about with what he has not assumed he has not healed. The, the full human condition had to be healed in some respect. And um, so I, I love also thinking about the fact that God showing up as a dependent, an utterly dependent infant, um, says something about it's okay for us to embrace our dependence upon one another. Um, that as humans, part of our tendency that we see in Eden is the desire to be godlike on our own terms. When God said, I made you this way, I made you to be in dependence upon one another. Um, and so for us to see this picture of Jesus as a vulnerable infant, you know, in Mary's womb and then on her lap, so to speak, right, is to see that's what it means to be human too. So, um, so I mean, we, we still like to think of ourselves as what the ideal human is, is independent, right? But what we see there is, this, I think, a really lovely picture of, now there's all sorts of ways to be human, and it can include being a dependent person. In fact, that's what we're called into in relationship. So there's a lot more to say there. Yeah, that's really good. All right, thank you very much for being part of our class and our discussion. Thank you.